The doors that Above and Beyond opens and the doors that get closed on Above and Beyond in this podcast to me is just always, honestly, a gift. I just so enjoy seeing who comes walking through these doors to share their story. It's a blast when it's a pastor like Jesse Bradley, so strong in his faith, in his conviction. But before he was any of that, he was a soccer All-American. He played goalie professionally abroad, and he also was a professional athlete who lost total control of his body and mind as sickness and disease ravaged him. What did Jesse Bradley learn on that journey? Where did he turn on that journey? What exactly has that journey taught him to share with all of you? That's what this Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports, is all about with Jesse Bradley. So you grew up in Minnesota? I grew up in Minnesota, and I grew up, and I was a huge sports fan. The first place I lived was in an apartment complex in the parking lot of the football stadium for the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers. And my parents would take me to the games. At age three, I told them in preschool, that's what I want to do when I grow up is play sports. And it was in me. You know, it just runs strong from the beginning. And we'd go to those games. I started playing different sports in Minnesota. Of course, uh, you don't enjoy sunshine year-round. So basketball was a focus, but played soccer, indoor and outdoor, baseball. But I think basketball came more naturally. Okay. And then soccer? Soccer was something that uh, we had an incredible coach and uh, he is, you know, the best coach in the state. His son, Manny Lagos, who I grew up with, now runs Minnesota United. So it was a tremendous environment for developing players. And he watched me play basketball, and this was at the end of sixth grade, and he needed a goalkeeper. And he thought some of those skills would translate. So he started to just train me every week how to be a goalkeeper. And I enjoyed it more and more. Basketball was still my primary passion, though, growing up and, you know, high school. I think when I graduated, it was about 20 points a game, but I just didn't have the hops and the quicks to go on and play like I did with soccer. I knew there was potential there. And sometimes in life, your passion isn't where you're going to keep going, but maybe it's a different direction that you didn't see coming. And I didn't even realize where soccer was going, but uh, we did have a great run. And for high school soccer, we won you know, the championship twice, state championship in the Metrodome, which for a Minnesota kid is wow. just a dream. So you were know? you a goalie then? I was a goalie. You were a goalie. Yeah. Okay. You have to be a little crazy sure. to be a goalie. And uh, we, we played in the Metrodome shootout. You know, we had like five or 6,000 people there, won the state championship twice. And that really, the first time we played in the Dome, I was so scared, didn't want to touch the ball. And sometimes in life and in sports, you know, you're fearful and you're like, oh, please don't bring it over here. Oh. Terrible game, but we still won. The second opportunity I had to go back, I was like, I want this. It was a different mindset. And I think what's going on between your ears is so important in sports. And I was just ready. And that game, the championship my senior year, really propelled my college career. It was a, it was a turning point, I think, as far as opportunities that opened up as well. Driven home? Was your home, obviously you end up at the, in the Ivy League, which we'll get to in a second, but was your home a really focused, driven, passionate, passionate home growing up in? You know, my parents got divorced when I was seven, and I still remember that day. It was right after my birthday, and I remember dad leaving, and the pain of having, you know, the two most important people in my life, the pillars of our family, no longer together. And when dad left, there was a void. I didn't grow up 
ever going to church or reading the Bible. I didn't know the first thing about God, uh, Jesus. Uh, I would have failed any kind of quiz at that point about spiritual topics, and I wasn't that interested. And my life consisted of grades, sports, and friends. And with sports, that was the purest joy. And I think for me, sports was kind of an escape from some of the pain. Uh, It was healing. It was fun. And I think it filled some of the void of not having a dad right there. Mm -hmm. And also the coaches that I had were incredible, and they were father figures in some ways as well. So I uh, just played sports constantly, and when I wasn't studying or hanging out with friends, and it just grew. The passion grew for me. Did that that day at 7, did that um, strengthen your resolve? you think? As you look back now at that moment, that pain and that hurt, did it drive? Was it a driving force to fill it with sport? I would say that it didn't really change for me in terms of um, who I was until later in life, but it was a huge factor in who I am now. And I say that because the coping mechanism in our family was try harder get through it, do better. Mm. So instead of knowing how to talk about pain and loss, I even went to a couple of counselors and it just didn't make it better. I didn't know how to process. The counselors even slammed me at one point because I was just uh, just determined, you know, I'm going to get through it. I'm not going to break down. And, uh, and yet I had resentment towards my dad that didn't go away, that was buried and kind of unaware of it and denial. I finally saw him my senior year in high school. And when I talked to him, I told him how upset I was at him Mm. and it didn't help the relationship. He went away further and I was just more resentful. Mm. When I came to know the Lord in college, God changed my heart. It was the first time I knew I was forgiven. And when I received forgiveness from God and thanks to Jesus, I then returned to my father and told him just sincerely, I'm not holding any grudges or resentment. I just want to have the best relationship possible. And that was a start of a healing process with my dad. Mm. And it just continued. Uh, he came to my wedding when I got married when I was in my 30s. That was the first big event. I can remember dad being there. And the best man in my wedding turned to me. And just before we were going to start the ceremony and said, is there anything else you want? And I said, I just want one more hug from dad. And uh, just went and found him wow. and just got one more hug from him. So there's been a lot of healing there. But the turning point was when I knew I was forgiven and I knew I needed to forgive dad. And that was one of the first things that happened to me as a Christian. And that was a professor at Dartmouth that loved the Lord, right? That introduced you or, or was a little bit different experience? Yeah, the <laughs> irony of it. Again, I wasn't looking for God, but I took this class, Introduction to World Religions. I never read the Bible, didn't read other religious texts until the class, and he assigned the Gospel of John. And this particular professor undermined the Scripture. Huh. And a lot of people that grow up in a Christian environment or a church, they get to college and then they might stumble or even lose parts of their faith because they're hearing things for the first time and criticism and it sounds intellectual. But for me, hearing the Gospel of John, my eyes just opened up. Like I had never read anything like this. I had never heard about Jesus. I have never seen someone with so much power and the teaching and the miracles. And I was drawn to who is this Jesus? And I had hundreds of questions. And out of that, there was a freshman who was on the track team in my dorm floor. And I just started to ask him questions. He was this patient, quiet guy from Tennessee. And he just listened to me. And each time I asked him a question, he would give me a little more and I'd think it over and just kind of ponder it in my heart, in my spirit. I still, 
I'd say gave God the Heisman for a year, mm. even though I got all the evidence because I kicked the tires. If I'm going to follow, if I'm going to commit my life, I need to know there's some substance here and there's historical evidence. And yet I didn't want to say yes, even though the evidence was laid out. And maybe there's someone listening today that, you know, you've heard about Jesus. The evidence is there, but there's something in you that just still wants to have the steering wheel. And that's the tension at at that point. What year in college is this? It was my sophomore year that I put my trust in Christ. It was my freshman year that I started to explore who is Jesus, who is God. And how did that door at Dartmouth even open up? Yeah, from... Recruiting, I wanted to go to Stanford. You know, grew up in Minnesota. Who doesn't want to go to the beach in California or mm-hmm. head to the warm weather? Most of my schools were on the East Coast, but then I didn't get into Stanford, though I thought the connection with the coach was good and everything was lined up. I remember receiving that letter. You know, when the letter comes and you're waiting to hear back from a school and then it's just a, an envelope with a very thin, you know, <laughs> one page, short paragraph, you know the bad news. Yeah. And I was crushed. And yet this opportunity at Dartmouth opened up where Bobby Clark was the coach. He was a legend in Scotland. He was a goalkeeper also. The team was, you know, Division I, uh, excellent program. And right now his son is the coach at University of Washington, the Huskies, Jamie Clark. And so Jamie and I have been close since Jamie was just in middle school running around with sweatpants that were three sizes too big for him and, you know, playing with the guys. But Bobby – it was a connection there. It was a relationship. Brock, you yeah. say it all the time. It comes down to relationship. And when there's someone that you trust and you want to play for and you see the excellence in the program, we still, like this week, we had an email thread going because the Huskies were in the Elite Eight. And we were all just talking and cracking jokes. And in some ways, it's like we've never left, you know, that bond. And it's family. That's what Coach says. And when you get that experience, that's what makes college sports unique, too, I think. It's yep. like your friends are there, the bond that you have together, you're becoming men together, and that mentor. And Bobby Clark was outstanding. And so the combination of great academics, uh, it's an unbelievable campus. It's beautiful. It's a classic New England campus. And then uh, with sports and the soccer team, it and then also there was uh, this was interesting too. You never know who I say God's going to use to kind of open up a door. But it was our rival coach in high school that I thought you know probably didn't respect us that much. Always wanted to beat us. It was our rival coach that spoke to Bobby Clark and said, "I think you need to check out Jesse." Wow. And so you just never know who's watching in life and how God's going to arrange things. But I look back now and I say, well, this is God's hand. I mean, some things are clear, you know, hindsight, looking back. And I'm so grateful I didn't go to Stanford. And I think it's a reminder that a lot of times we have a plan, but the best things in life aren't going to be planned. You know, what's amazing too, is you're not the first who's been on this podcast and never heard the Bible. In fact, as you were sharing that, I was reflecting back on John Kitna and John was the same way. Even he grew up in Tacoma, and you think, come on, how have you never, ever heard the Bible? Minnesota's a fairly, I don't know, I mean, there's conservative or, you know, strong-valued folks, and you never, ever had heard the Bible, been to church, never seen any of that. I'm surprised, because when I go back to where I grew up in both Minneapolis and St. Paul, there's churches everywhere. everywhere. And I think, well, they didn't reach out to me. I guess I wasn't interested at the time, even in high school. There was no Christian I ever had a conversation with where someone would say, oh, I'm a Christian, or talk about spiritual things, or invited to church at all. I remember 
there was one guy in our soccer team that had a picture of his girlfriend, and there was like a Bible verse on the back. And I just caught a glimpse. And I thought, what are you doing with a Bible verse on the back of a picture of your girlfriend? <laughs> so there's just little pieces like that. But uh, no, it's easy to go through life. You know, in Seattle right now, I'd say I think there's 2 million people who don't follow Jesus and maybe only 3% going to church on a weekend. So yeah. you can see how, and Christians get intimidated, silent, and pretty soon, like you just assume if you're following Jesus that, oh, people aren't interested, I'm not going to invite them. But for me, there was success on the outside in a different story on the inside. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of athletes, it looks good because I'm getting good grades, I'm you know at a good college, I'm going to parties. Uh, grades, you know, are, are excellent. I would say, uh, sports, you know, my freshman year, I got an Ivy league, all Ivy league, you know, uh, award our team won the Ivy league championship and hadn't won it in, in the decades. And so all this, why do you was, need Jesus? Exactly. All huh? this was going well. And it's not what people could see, but it's that inner dissonance. Mm. And you know, when there's a story on the inside that's not as good as a story on the outside. And I couldn't figure out if all my goals and all the things I thought would bring success, all those boxes are now checked. How come I feel this way on the inside? And I didn't even know that was a void where God was missing, uh, but I just knew uh, something was missing. How was that professor? That professor, what was the class again? It was Introduction to World Religion, and he didn't follow Jesus. I went back and shared my story with him. This is like 15 years later. Okay. And he was just like, wow, that's interesting. And his safe phrase was, I guess that speaks to the merit of the text. And so he oh. did kind of give a nod to the Bible's powerful, but it was like no other book I'd ever read. Yeah. And it wasn't his intention to lead people to Jesus. If anything, I think he wanted to challenge some people in yeah. that class. But it challenged you. It did. It did. You know, if you have an open heart and you read the Bible, if you have an open heart and you just say, Jesus, I don't understand everything. I'm not sure who you are, but I'm open. If you just start there and then God reveals that he is here, that this world is not an accident, that everything just didn't fall into place. There's a creator. And then he reveals how much he loves you and that he's personal. He's not just distant. And then you start to learn and you see what Jesus did and the evidence is laid out there. I mean, faith, it's not like we step into a laboratory and prove God. It's kind of like love. We don't step into a laboratory and prove love. But you look at all the evidence and then you make your best decision. Mm. And it got to the point where it would take more faith to reject Jesus and not intellectual integrity faith, but just pushing aside the evidence, it would take more of just determination that I'm going to do what I want to do to reject Jesus than it would be to receive his grace. And grace is what stood out in the class where I studied the different religions. So many of them were keeping a law, trying to achieve it, working your way up the ladder. Are you good enough? And Christianity is not a game of whether you're 80 or 90 or 95. Can you get there? We can't get there. And that's so freeing. And we know that's the truth. And it's grace, an undeserved gift. And when I see how God pursued me before I was interested in him and loved me before I ever responded was, you know, wanted to follow him, that grace is what um, changes our lives. It's not law. It's not dead religion. It's the grace of God. How was sport then for you is a driven, determined, grit your teeth, tough as heck goalie, all Ivy League as a freshman, this driven kid who's got a hurt from a, a dad that left and, and some of that pain that you know is driving you. 
And then all of a sudden this grace comes in. You yeah. give your life to Christ, your sophomore year of college. Then what does your soccer and your sport and your career look like? Yeah, my friends weren't expecting it. Family wasn't expecting it. And I think they noticed right away. It's like, okay, I've forgiven dad. Uh, My friend said, I'm just not ripping on people. You know, that was my mouth. I would just find something and tear someone down. They're like, all of a sudden that stopped. I was going to parties where everyone's drinking and I wasn't drinking, but I'd have more fun than the people who were drinking, you know? And so they're kind of trying to, to add that up with soccer. I didn't feel as alone. As a goalie, there's a lot of pressure, especially in soccer, because if you mess up, you probably lose the game. And it's on the scoreboard, 1-0, 2-1. Everyone knows who let in the goal. I still, no joke, I still try to delete some plays that pop into my mind where I just let in a terrible goal or we could have won a game. So psychologically, goalkeeper is an interesting position. You're kind of alone back there. You're kind of a general. You're guiding people where to go. But I put a lot of pressure on myself, and I can naturally... I think do that, be perfectionistic. And I felt like soccer shifted into the right perspective when I started to follow God. And it was no longer my number one. It was no longer kind of my idol. I could see it for what it was. And then I learned how to pray. And I still won't forget in the dormitory room with Mike at Dartmouth. And it was the first time we ever prayed. And the first time I prayed out loud and was Mike the kid from Tennessee? Mike was the kid from Tennessee. And I remember going out. It was like a Friday night. We prayed in his room. And then I went out to some parties. And I remember at the parties, just thinking this, I just talked with God for the first time. I talked with God tonight. And I was just so blown away. And it was the start of something where all of a sudden I realized, you know, my faith, it, it's not compartmentalized. But now I can bring this relationship into soccer. And now I can talk to God during the game. And some of those big games, you know, we made it to the NCAA Final Eight my junior year, and we lost against Alexi Lawless and Rutgers. But, you know, we won in a shootout before that against Vermont in the snow. And I just remember prayer was such a big part. I started, a, we started FCA on campus, and then also for the soccer team, gathering them to pray before games. And I remember just praying and in Mike's prayer, like that my legs would just be quick and my reflex would be responsive. Mm. And I was like, wow, we can pray for this stuff. And then to see it play out in the field, and it was just a sense of wonder and uh, that, that God cares. Not that I'm saying God is, you know, determining, all right, you're going to win this, and he's for one team, he's against the other. There's a lot of nonsense that, that sure. can come into that. But, uh, but just that he cares, he's with me, he's going to help me, and the pressure's not all on my shoulders. Yeah. And now I'm just freed up to enjoy the sport more. You know, what's amazing is I don't even think I've shared this on the podcast in these four years, little tidbits, but in you sharing that, I can think back to a bus ride. We played Oregon State my last year of college, and the audience of one, there was a, there was a chapel on the audience of one. There's only one. Mm. Yeah. Audience, so when you have 70,000 people here, and if you're like feeling all that pressure and all that, just realize there's an audience of one. And I remember singing on that bus ride and being yeah. so filled yeah. with the Spirit and, and probably praying more that game, going mm. into it, throughout it, just circumstance and everything, and just that freedom. And it certainly is an encouragement that I'll give to my girls that feel the weight of expectation or my nephew or others. You have an audience of one that you're playing for and that freedom that comes from that grace. Yes. And when you know that that one has already accepted you and loved you, then uh, you're not trying to please everybody. You're not trying to earn everyone's approval. 
and you don't feel like, uh, although you always want to do well in sport, you don't feel like the weight of the world's on your shoulders. And for a lot of athletes, that's just crippling. It is. You don't play well. You don't play as well. Uh, I remember I did this, you know, as a psych major, and I did this sports psychology independent study piece my senior year, and it was with some teams and also something I set up. And the premise was how do we perform in practice and how do we perform in games and how hard are we trying? Mm. And it was like there's a an area zone where you're playing at your best. And if you don't try hard enough, you don't get that. But if you try too hard, your performance actually decreases. And seeing that played out, you know, at the team I was working with, that's Mm. what the research showed. And then that just matched my own experience. And I think, you know, when you're walking with God, then you can enjoy sport for what it is, which is one, I think, one of the most incredible platforms to build a relationship, get to know people. I mean, I've just always played soccer, love to play with people from different countries, build those relationships. Character comes out quickly with sport, but it's designed to unite. It's, it's designed for pleasure, I think. It's yeah. designed for fun and use your God-given gifts. And ultimately, it's for his glory and there's an incredible platform with it. But uh, so easily, it can shift to an idol. It can shift to me-centered it can shift to awards. It can shift to a lot of places mm. that are just not healthy at the end of the day. Because what matters when you look back 20 years later, I can't remember the games and the goals, all of them and the, the scores, but I remember the people and I'm still connected with the So people. you leave Dartmouth and go play abroad. I did. And you had a passion to play professionally. Yeah. I played just before the MLS launched. And so I did play in Minnesota with those guys who are leading the United right now. Sounders are still my first, though. And then uh, Scotland and also Zimbabwe, two very different cultures. And in Scotland, it was Aberdeen, which makes a Minnesota winter look kind of mild. And the locker room, guys are cutthroat competitive. So if you make a mistake out there on the field... You hear about it maybe all week. And, uh, and, and the Scottish adjectives were sometimes, well, I just can't repeat any of them. So uh, on the air, you know, it was just, it was an area where it grew up, but it's like it just tested you to the core. And that, yeah, I found uh, it so enjoyable and endearing. And, and also uh, it was so intense. And, and that was Scotland. And then Zimbabwe was the opposite, where the second I got off the plane, everyone just has love and hospitality and mm. generosity. And they're so thrilled you're there. And you would go into a home and maybe they didn't have much money, but they would just bring out the best meat or the best food, like just so caring. I learned about contentment and I learned about joy in that environment because there was drought, there were AIDS. Guys on the national team were just dead at age 20. You'd be playing with them one month and then a couple months later, they're gone. So AIDS was just wiping out the best athletes, Mm. Uh, the chaos in that country. And, you know, it's documented there what's kind of happened with leadership and, and so there's so many things happening, and yet in that environment, I still hear the voices singing. We would tutor on the side in, in the schools, and in the joy of the people, and the love that you would feel from the people. Mm-hmm. And uh, both Scotland and Zimbabwe are close to my heart, but uh, Zimbabwe, uh, the people there, it was a love that you felt right away. And then in both places, there's a lot of passion for soccer. So was soccer something you wanted to do over the long term? You wanted to, was there a a desire, a goal to play professionally in America again or in the English Premier League or where was the drive and the passion with soccer and your walk? Yeah, there were opportunities. And when I graduated, it was choosing between England. You know, Bobby Clark 
Queens Park Rangers, Man U. I mean, friends with Alex Ferguson. I mean, he's just so well-connected. And then there was Africa. And there was something about Africa where I just thought we could meet some needs while we're in Africa. And what I didn't see coming was that I took a prescribed drug to prevent malaria, took it every week. And after that first season in Africa, it built up toxic levels in my system. And I was wrecked. I mean, I flew back to America. I fought for my life for a year. And it took 10 years to recover. Talk to me about that. Tragically ended my career. You know, goalies can play sometimes until they're 40. So I thought I was going to have a long career. I was waiting. MLS would open up, you know, and come back to the States. Well, I started to notice, uh, and the symptoms didn't come on right away. But then when they did come on, it was like a flood. And I never have had headaches. And I had the most intense migraines. And the light, any light in the room would just be killer. You know, I started to get double vision, sweats and chills. I started to have crazy dreams and kind of hallucination type dreams. And then my heart started to beat rapidly, 160 beats a minute. And then it developed an abnormality, atrial flutter, uh, murmur, skip beats. My chest was just in pain all the time. My my parents had a little baby monitor that they bought from Target and they would just listen at night just to see, like, am I making it? How am I doing? Came back, paid out of pocket, went to Stanford, and he listed 10 things that it could be. Uh, One of them was the drug and toxic levels of the drug in my system. And when I heard that, I knew it. And the doctor had prescribed it because you have to take it back for another month after you come back from the States. And so the doctor, the medical community said, keep taking the drug because you don't want to get malaria on top of what you've got. And it was one of those times, I don't know how many there's been in my life, but it was one of those times where I clearly heard from God to stop taking the drug. Mm. And it was against the advice of different people and also the medical community. But I knew that uh, this is what it was. Another thing I would say about the drug is that it, I always had a pretty emotional equilibrium, even keel, uh, balanced. This brought on panic attacks, crazy depression, Mm. suicidal thoughts flood in. It was like, you know, as an athlete, you have a good sense of your body and your mind. Mm-hmm. And it was all this stuff that was out of control from my thoughts, the emotions, physically, my heart, vision. And it was like something was running through my system. It was brutal. And the doctors had no answer. The half-life is a month. And all they could say was, you know, some people have taken their lives. Some people just end up more in a vegetative state. Some people maybe gradually recover. We don't know what your path is. And what did that do at that moment to your faith? It's something you've been driven to do, something you love to do. You love the Lord now. These opportunities have come. Yeah. Your collegiate career is a major blessing. You're playing professionally. You love the people there. Yeah. This drug is decimating your body. Yes. It's wrecking your body. What did that yeah. do in that moment to your walk with this loving, grace-filled Lord? Mm. You know, uh, it's not uh, obviously what I wanted, and all my coping mechanisms in life in terms of perseverance and just try harder were gone because it's out of my control. There's no academic setting. There's no athletic setting. There's no career to jump into. I didn't have you know a lot of friends around at that time because it was after college. And I took an inventory. It's like, well, what do I still have left and who am I? And Brock, that's when my identity shifted at that point. So I believe out of the worst situations in life, God still brings some of the best stuff. And I wouldn't want anyone to go through what I went through, but some things changed for me. Uh, And one of them was coping and learning how to pour up my heart to God, learning how to give him burdens that I'm going through and learn how to trust him in the deepest way. 
And another one was just getting into the Bible, starting to pray and read the Bible and memorize the Bible. Because if I didn't have the Bible in my mind, then I would go into a ditch of discouragement, of fear, depression, and the drug would run rampant. And so I was just holding on. I was clinging to God, holding on to the Word, and my identity shifted. Because I didn't even realize, I think for a lot of athletes, we don't realize how much our identity is in our performance, our sport, our health, and our career. And when it's gone, then you think, well, who am I and what do I still have left? And I realized that all these things I'm losing that are so dear to me, uh, I'm still here, but who am I? And that's when it shifted that my identity would be in a relationship that would never leave and in one who's always going to be there because everything else could literally be gone. I mean, health could be gone, career could be gone, money gone. I mean, it felt like everything else, it was a table, the four legs were just kicked out from underneath and just hit the ground hard. And it's like, well, what do I still have left? You're Job. It felt like Job. But but God is still there. And so I'm going to shift. I'm going to put my identity in God and I'm going to ask him to rebuild my life. And knowing that just like salvation, the forgiveness of sins is by grace, mm-hmm. I knew if I'm ever in my right mind, if I can help someone, if I have skills, if I have physical ability that could emerge, it would all be the grace of God because I can't do it in my own strength. Did you know soccer was over? Did you come to grips or how long was that that challenge or that battle to grit your teeth and get back? (laughs) Yeah, waited and hope. Even today, I feel like I got 10 competitive years in me to just go after it, but it's probably too late to try to resurrect the career. Uh, You know, I was still, you know, years later, I had to start with just charting walking in that first year. It's like, well, I can walk up to 10 minutes. Well, I can walk without my heart rate just skyrocketing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was just monitoring because uh, my heart would have those episodes all the time. Even driving, I had to relearn driving because any stimulation was just an overload. And again, like the heart would just start taking off and uh, I couldn't control my heart rate at all. It The drug inhibits the inhibitors, which means there's nothing to slow down my heart rate. So driving wasn't even safe. And, you know, learning how to drive again. Uh, from professional athlete to just being so glad I could walk a mile. Like, that was amazing. Uh, so all these different little steps. But a couple years into that, I did uh, have an interest. I started kicking the ball around a little more and just wondered, hoping. Mm-hmm. And it's weird trying to mourn or grieve something that you still kind of hope might come back. But yet, how do you grieve? Who likes to grieve? How do you do it? (laughs) I don't want to do that. And I think that uh, I didn't really enter in initially to some of the grieving, maybe because the grieving felt so massive. Like if you're going to eat an elephant, where do you even want to start? And uh, and then it's like, well, the grieving's not fun. How do you even do it? I mean, I've always felt like crying didn't come naturally. You know, I'm a pretty positive person. Mm -hmm. So just felt really trapped, really alone. You mentioned, you know, what was it like with God? There was one point where it felt the darkest and God felt the most distant. And it's just like, where are you? And this is a wild story, but that literal next morning, because I had kind of a dark night of the soul, literal night. And the next morning I get a call from my uncle, who's a longtime comedian in LA. And he, in a hotel room, and he's had a history of addictions and drugs. And in a hotel room, he picked up a Gideon's Bible, read the Gospel of Mark, and he put his trust in Jesus. This happened in Iowa. And he gave me a call the next morning. And here's my uncle. And he's like, he's preaching to me. He's saying, Jesse, 
Jesus is king, not Elvis. Jesus is king. And he's just uh, so full of joy. And I'm like, Dan, is this even you? Is this happening? And it was right then it was like, God said, you made it through last night. I'm going to give you some encouragement. And my grace is going to be sufficient this whole time. And that was one of those provisions that it just changed my perspective. And I just knew God's going to be there for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the real growth was for me to learn how to open up. I think I had an image of God that he was very interested in my success. Like when I'm making good choices, when I'm doing well in the field, when my resume is all, you know, look at that Mm. and these new opportunities, like then God really like is affectionate and interested in me. But I didn't have a view of God that really wanted to be in my life, in the loss, in the pain, in the ugliness, in the weakness, in the bad decisions, like that he wanted to be in that part of my life just as much. And so that's when I started to let him in. And as you look back now, as you're a pastor and a minister and you get to teach this word, as you kind of look back now, part of you, like all of this journey was to do what you're doing now. Yeah. At first it was, uh, kind of challenging stepping into a church for the first time, you know, sensing a redirection into ministry, but then not knowing anything about how ministry works. And I'll tell you, my first impressions were, uh, how come in the church, everyone's so kind of half-hearted when I'm coming out of the locker room, where we're going for it with soccer. Like if we're doing stuff that's even more significant, why is everyone so kind of casual and doesn't seem to care that much? Like this is more important than soccer. And then the other thing was in the soccer locker room, I thought we're so united. We knew our roles. It was a team. Like we're clicking. And then I'd step into church and feel like, how come it just feels so kind of weird or sometimes divided or people don't know their roles or they don't understand where we're going. And so it was a little bit of a, a check for me just to think like, okay, what does ministry even look like? And, and, but I did, I started serving in don't despise small beginnings. I started serving with mm-hmm. middle school and it was like, I knew, okay, long-term that wouldn't be me, but that was a start and God confirmed it. And then I went off to seminary and then, uh, college ministry in Iowa, University of Iowa, um, was amazing. I mean, it went from 20 to 800 students, people coming to the Lord every week. And it was, I think, out of your low points in life, sometimes that's your greatest opportunity to reach yeah. people. And for me, not growing up uh, with God at all, there's so many that came onto the campus in that same situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, divorce, being able to talk about that. And then even later in life, Africa, what I've been through, you know, and even that career change as well and dealing with pain, like out of our low points, the opportunities that come are incredible. And uh, from Iowa, California, and then Southern California, Northern California, and then up to Seattle. And I love it here. Been here four years. God's doing amazing things. And uh, it's a special place. Can I ask you about uh, how you deal with being a Christian, having your faith, your natural disposition, and then you're dealing with really heavy stuff like depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. How during that period of time did you reconcile your faith with this sort of thing that's going on within you? How did you reconcile Christ is within me, and yet I've got this internal pain, these feelings of trying to wanting to end my life or not being able to change how I think and feel? Yeah. Sadly, I think we kick people when they're down. A lot of times, and if someone had a broken arm or broken leg, we'd say, oh, go to the doctor, get some help. But if someone has a battle emotionally, 
then we think, oh, we can slam people, false guilt, say, oh, where's your faith? You know, well, you should just buck up. Come on, handle that. And so my compassion grew for people who suffer in those ways. And what does healing look like? Healing's a journey, and it doesn't all come at once. Like, I think you can forgive people right away. That's an act of the will decision, but then healing's a journey. So in some of my relationships, like with my dad, it was forgiveness, but then healing was a process. And physically, healing was a process, like I say, 10 years. And then emotionally, healing was a process. It was kind of parallel with my physical recovery. And so it was really 10 years of learning how do I respond when this hits? Like, how do you respond when anxiety hits or when depression hits or when a suicidal thought pops in? And those thoughts that would come in and the drug triggered so many things. Our brains are intricate. And when you put chemicals in there, uh, weird things can happen. And it was taking that thought. See, I don't believe that we're responsible necessarily for the first thought that pops in. But then what do we do with that thought? And I think you can take those thoughts and bring them to the Lord. Uh, Bring them to the Lord for healing for truth. Uh, If you wanted to go more spiritual in depth, you'd say there's a devil who's real. He's the father of all lies in little lies in our head, whether it's in a a marriage context or athletic context or just trying to get through life. Those little lies can affect every part of our life. And when you replace it with truth, you replace it with goodness instead of destructive. Uh, It's something, though, that's a battle every day, and I think the most intense battles are often between our ears. And when you get truth and goodness in there and you keep replacing it, stay diligent. I think some of my hardest work was during that time, emotionally and mentally, just reject that. Okay, I'm going to intentionally go this direction. Uh, But even then, uh, I just want to say if you're struggling emotionally, Uh, You don't have to have shame or denial or try to stuff it, that you can bring it out into the light. There's people who care. There's good resources. And Jesus himself will be right there with you. And he's a healer. And he will meet you in those deep, dark places. Mm. Take those thoughts captive. right? And then competitively, you hear so much about that in sports psychology today. You were a psych major. I was a psych major. Yeah, I've got kids that are walking this journey now in sport and tackling these negative thoughts. And why do they have to come? Why do I have to think this way? And why why is this always a battle? Why is this battlefield not gotten better? Why do I have to take on all of the arrows, right? All the negative thoughts. But you have that power to take them captive and then to bring them to the Lord. That's right. In one sense, I was a victim because there was no warning of the drug and the drugs running through my body. There's so many things I can't control. But we have to be careful not to have a victim mentality or mindset mm. that, oh, there's nothing I can do now. Because I think abiding and responding is one of the most powerful phrases spiritually. Abiding just means closeness to God. And then responding, it's a there's a power beyond ours and the power of the Holy Spirit and will help us in ways that we cannot do it alone. Mm. And when you're close with God, and then when you're abiding and responding, there's sometimes a love that you don't have. There's a peace that you don't have, contentment. I mean, we live in a culture that is starved for contentment, is chasing contentment, and can't find it. 
Well, it's in relationship. Nothing in life is more important than relationship. It's not going to be in what you purchase or what you accomplish. And so you go back to what's most important, and then you go close in those relationships. Mm. And healing uh, comes directly from God and also comes from people around you. And you see who God brings into your life and then the healing that comes. And then your mindset does change. And your priorities can change. Your thought patterns can change. And there's renewal. And that's powerful. And you see the fruit of it, but you can't just chase the fruit. It, it goes deep to the root, and it, it comes out of that closeness with God. The hey, last thing here is, is you are a pastor now, and as you're around a lot of youth sports, which I'm sure you are in your church community, and you're around soccer still passionately. Counsel. How do you counsel those, be it the young athletes, the aspiring athletes, maybe even the athletes? How do you counsel those parents right, that are alongside in this crazy, crazy journey of youth sports and more. How do you counsel? What, what is your biggest piece of advice through the journey that you have been on in life? Yeah. We all see the professional athletes, and it's exciting. We had Sounders Faith and Family Night. I mean, people look up to James Riley, the different ones, and yet there's a journey we know before professional soccer. And as you just rewind the different ages, I remember there's a goalkeeper, Gordon Banks, said, Parents, just make sure your kids are having fun, especially until they're 10. You know, just make sure they're having fun. And I can't tell you, after watching our four kids play soccer and what happens on the sidelines, if there was a sidelines camera and then it went on social media, I think there'd be a lot of embarrassed parents on yeah. Monday morning as that would circulate. There's just something I'll raise about, my hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> that that sports context. Like, we just feel so yeah. empowered to slam the yeah. ref and lose our cool. And it's like, wait a second. Uh, so... Give your kids room to find their favorite sport, to play their favorite position, to do it their style. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of different personalities with our kids. Some want to get after it, and I've got to try to, you know, tone it down a little bit. And then others, like I'm trying to motivate, and I realize, oh, they just don't have a motivation like mine. But let your kids be who they are, and just remember that that referee is not like full time pulling in six figures like they sometimes don't even have like additional help or linesmen there's not like five refs at youth games you know in a lot of sports and so they're just doing their best and uh and i think for me it's also a reminder it's like uh what is number one in your life because i think the ultimate purpose is faithfulness to god and if the ultimate purpose is winning well if your ultimate purpose is winning in marriage like, and you're always trying to win every argument, like, it's going to be destructive. If your ultimate purpose is winning, you know, in sport and you do it at any cost, we're well, going to be cheating, performance enhancing drugs. Like, if you place it on your kids that they've got to win and be the best and start and play this position, and, you know, it just, um, it crushes their spirit. So they watch over. Every kid knows what their parents are doing on the sidelines and just let them enjoy the sport. Uh, there's a lot of funny stuff on social media about parents and support groups and what they need to go through. But what I've seen, I think, since I was a kid is that sports cost a lot more, people are a lot more serious, and you got a lot more parents blowing their cool. And that's really changed. You can't, you can't miss that. And, and I think we just need to bring it back to some of that joy that happens when sports are what they're designed to be and parents are um, more of a uh, let the coach coach 
that that's what I'd say. Let the well, go. Thank you for sharing your joy, bro. Yeah. Yeah. We've had and done a lot of these, but just your just your joy for the Lord, your joy for life, your joy through telling your story of your circumstances. Been a blessing. Brock, I wanna say that when I came to Seattle and just listening to sports radio, your voice stood out because you get to the core of stuff. I like the way you analyze stuff and you just combine sports and relationships, sports and life. And I'm so grateful to be here with you today and also just taking this risk of a podcast that combines sports and faith. And I think they're two really important aspects of life. They're passions for me. And to bring them together and then draw out people's stories, it's really powerful what you're doing on this podcast. So thank you for investing your time and energy too. Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports. Subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com.